so we had to travel into Barcelona for training. And uh, one of the days that we did that, we actually got robbed and um, our car got smashed into. Welcome back or welcome to the Chargers Grandma Podcast. On episode five, we have our first world champion, Jerry Clifford, or as I like to call him, the champ champ. Jerry is from Australia, trained with a team full of high performers. Talk about everything from when he realizes his disability, where the parallel movement is headed, and even shares a prank he played on his girlfriend. Jared, hope I didn't get you into too much trouble, my man. Hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Jared, welcome to the Strides Girl Podcast. How you doing, man? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Good, man. Good, man. First off, I have a little tongue-in-cheek question for you. Like, how is it being the champ, the champ, champ, champ? I mean, someone has to do it, but... I mean, how is it? Oh, mate, I'm, I think I'm just lucky that I've got, you know, a 5K in my category. So <laughs> I reckon you'd be a, a good contender for that title as well, um, if there was one. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, man. Well, I just want to touch on COVID just slightly because um, I'm sure you've been asked a million times. Uh, but, you know, for me, I've had some uh, ebbs and flows of lack of, lack of motivation. And I really relied on why I'm in the sport. Um, have you had any lows in your motivation? Uh, and if so, how have you got, gotten through that? Yeah, like definitely, you know, I think, you know, me and you are in very similar places at the moment. You know, we both won world titles, you know, six months ago, it feels like. And, and uh, you know, we were just had to hold that form, repeat it again, life dream accomplished, you know, within a month's time. But obviously that's not happening. Um, we don't know, like hopefully it's on next year, but there's no guarantee um, and it could be four years away. And thinking about that, you know, that can be really tough. Um, there's definitely days where I kind of, you know, have a run on the program and I, I really don't want to do it. It's um, because running is so associated with that frustration, that disappointment. Um, yeah, there's definitely days where I hate running. Um, there's other days though where, you know, I get the love back and, you know, I'm, I'm out like a flash but um yeah like dealing with that disappointment it's um you know I definitely am one that is keeping hope that the games might happen um you got to like otherwise I'm not sure how I'd cope but yeah trying to look at the positives you know I'm young uh you are as well so you know we've got another year or another four years to get stronger um you know so I do think about all of that but uh yeah like I think it's also important to acknowledge that it's been super disappointing so um yeah, I, yeah, I'm still probably going through that, going through the ebbs and flows, um, definitely. Yeah, man. Um, so what does uh, what does training look like for you? I know for a while we weren't able to train as a group, um, but now we're able to. Well, now I'm shut down because I'm done with my season. But um, what does training look like for you? Are you able to see your coach? Are you able to uh, train train with your guide? How's that working? Yeah, so I'm living in Melbourne. Australia so that is not a great place to be in terms of corona at the moment uh, we not long ago we were able to train in groups of up to 10 um, in Melbourne but now we're in stage three lockdown and kind of stage four so they've just made it mandatory to wear masks outside so as a comparison um, to kind of where we're at but yeah we um we I'm allowed to train with one other person you have to stay within your postcode, um, as in like your, your very much local area. Um, 
you can't we are not allowed to leave metropolitan melbourne so we can't even go into regional victoria which is my state um yeah and my coach lives in canberra so which is another state so i definitely can't see him i'm trying to get an exemption to leave victoria because uh, Melbourne is getting worse and worse each day, it seems. Uh, and the rest of the country is actually doing really well. Um, you know, they've got, I think you're allowed to train in groups of up to 100. The Australian Rules football has like 60,000 people in, in some states going to watch, whereas here um, I'm allowed to train with one person, so I'm allowed to train with my guide. But other than that, you know, it's, it's either solo um, and just running the same trail over and over again, um, basically. Jeez, man, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, but to lay some lay some framework for our uh, conversation, I would love to hear some background on you, and also when you realized that Paralympic sport was an was an avenue you could explore. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with a vision impairment, juvenile macular degeneration, at the age of three, and um, yeah, that affects my central vision. So there's scar tissue and blistering on the back of my eye. And so facial features is something that I struggle to see, for instance. Um, like if you're, if I was looking directly at you and your face changed, you know, from happy to sad or something like that, I would probably not pick, that, pick up on that unless I was really, you know, moving my eyes because my peripheral vision is okay. Um, but, yeah, my vision wasn't as bad as it is now throughout, like, early stages of primary school, so around the ages of, you know, you know three to eight and then when I got to grade four and five, which in Australia you're, I, don't know, I think you're 10 or 11, uh, I started noticing that my vision was deteriorating. So I was kind of waking up um, in the morning with like, you know, like kind of like blur spots is probably the best way to describe them, uh, developing in the center of my eye. And I noticed that by, you know, I was picking up something to read and um, I thought my glasses were dirty. Uh, so I'd clean them and obviously they'd, they'd be clean uh, and yet that kind of those blur spot things were um, were still there. So that's my, how my kind of disability was developing. Um, but, you know, when you're 11 years old, like I'm sure a lot of people listening would understand that it's probably the age when you're most self-conscious. Like you want to fit in, you don't want to stand out at all, you just want to be... You know, I don't really understand now what normal is, but at that stage, you kind of have an idea of it, and it's like that's what you want to be. You know, you don't want you don't want anyone to think that you're different, and um, so yeah, having a vision impairment at that age is probably not what you want in that situation because you have to use adaptive equipment, magnifying glasses, you have to sit up the front of the class, um, so you definitely stand out. So for me. I did try and throw myself into other sports, Aussie rules, um, cricket, uh, you know, soccer, stuff like that. I tried to do, and I wasn't too bad at them, but, you know, having a vision impairment, I could, I was never going to fulfill my potential as um, athletically through those sports because I had to see a ball. Um, so, yeah, I decided, or well, mum decided actually to send me to a Paralympic talent search in Melbourne. Uh, I did a beep test, which like I'm not sure how universal that is, but yeah, you're just running up and back um, 20 meters, and the beep gets quicker and quicker. And I um, did well at that, and they basically said, you know, running's the sport for you. So that's when I realized, um, you know, because my vision deteriorated, and I was now considered 
legally blind, which is just like a severe vision impairment. Yeah, and the Paralympics were like, you know, a potential dream for me now. Wow, that's that's uh, that's pretty awesome that you know you got that avenue pretty early, and it's pretty interesting because I had my injury when I was ten, and you had you know you noticed yours when when you yeah. were eleven. And you're so right; that's such a impactful time, and uh, yeah, you want some form of normalcy, and um, you know it's kind of tough to have it, and people aren't the kids aren't the nicest at uh, that <laughs> age either. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, I had the greatest friends um, before that kind of happened and, and, you know, they, they stuck by me and I was really lucky. But, yeah, as you said, uh, especially going into high school, which was, you know, when I was 12 uh, and, and there's, like, all these kids you don't know. Um, yeah, like, I was pretty much just trying to hide it the entire time, which, yeah, at that age, as you probably know, yeah, you, it's just, like, <laughs> it's probably what you feel safest doing, just trying to hide it, which now, you know, um, I'd strongly recommend against because you know celebrating difference is super important. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and on on that note, and as you know, one of my goals is to really uh, help uh, grow our reach as Paralympic athletes, and I think education is super important. So I would love to hear how important your guy Tim is and what it's like to run with a tether. Yeah, yeah, I think. Um, Oh, what shocks people the most, I think, about the guiding is how small that tether is. It's, you know, it's a 30-centimeter tether, but there's two loops at either end that you you and the guide put your fingers through. So that takes up a lot of space. So really, you know, we're running sub-three-minute kilometers, um, you know, for the 1,500, two minutes, 30 per kilometer. I'm not sure. Um, no, no, you guys don't use miles, do you? No, that, that no, makes sense. Uh, kilometers yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, 230 per K. And um, we're basically 10 centimeters apart and we have to be in sync because of that. But yeah, I use a guide in the 5,000 meters. I use two, they swap it halfway because, you know, in events that are so tactical, I don't know what position I'm coming unless I've been at the front from the start. Um, but yeah, most of the time, I don't know what position I'm coming, how many laps to go, how fast I'm running because obviously the time clock, I can't see. Um, and also which athletes are at the front. Um, if one of the Moroccans or the Kenyans in my category is off the front, um, you know, that's probably worth knowing. Um, so I can react to that. Whereas if someone else is off the front that I know is probably not a threat, then knowing that information is good because that'll gauge my reaction and how much I'll have to exert to kind of keep up with, with those tactical decision-making. Um, so the guide is basically relaying all the information that a normally sighted person would get uh, in the 1500 meters though, our category says that we can only use one guide. Um, and my PB is three minutes, 45. So <laughs> finding someone that can speak, keep up and run in lane two. So extra distance uh, and is willing to sacrifice, you know, a month or two of their own career, um, is actually really hard to do. So I still go solo in that one, but when I'm running around my area in home at home or foreign places, um, although we don't always use the tether i'm being constantly guided through verbal cues or even just a nudge to you know so i don't hit a post um from tim so tim's like you know we've been running together for seven years he knows you know we know each other pretty well um and yeah like i trust him with my life basically you know and and that's true because when we cross a road like 
you know, I'm at his, I'm at the mercy of his decision making, basically. So um, it's pretty crucial for any vision impaired runner. Yeah, no, I can only imagine. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I, I have trouble with my, uh, you know, controlling my right side of my body, and I, I couldn't even yeah. imagine not, not being able to see. You know, um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm sure he's super important to you train. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, now we'd like to transition a little bit to your running career, you know, down to actual some some races. And I was doing some research and saw in London 2017, you you finished third. And I was just curious what um, what experience you gained there, because obviously in 2019, you hit the ground running. I know you went to World, World, World Juniors as well. And so what was that 2017 experience and how important was that for you? Yeah, 2017 was massive because, you know, I'd come seventh in Rio and that was, um, you know, I was still quite a long way off the medals. But I changed coaches to Philo Saunders, who coaches like all the Australian Paralympic distance runners now. And uh, like that, that basically went from club coaching where, you know, running was very much for fun um, with with personal goals to going to an elite training group where I had a lot of structure. I was running a lot more. Um, and I think I made a big jump and Philo definitely believed that I could win a medal in London, but I, yeah, I don't know. I, I wasn't convinced, but when I was trying to envision the race, that was the dream, you know, to win a medal. And, um, I came third. Yeah. I got a bronze medal again behind the Bucker brothers, which, in, you know, from Algeria, from which in my category, they're, you know, kind of two, powerhouses this decade this last decade so um yeah what I learned I think the biggest lesson that I learned or at least leading into that race was the whole focus on the process not the outcome because in Rio I was standing on the start line and obviously that that was just like a big experience for me um you know I was kind of like well you know I've run in front of a couple hundred people before but I haven't run in front of tens of thousands before so I was caught up in that moment and I was focusing on the outcome I was, you know, what position am I going to come? What are people going to think back home watching this on TV? And I think I was so nervous that I was like shaking. I, I wasn't remembering what I had to do in the race. And, you know, I saw a sports psych and leading into London, it was all about, you know, the pro, the outcome, sorry, will, will work itself out. You know, if you focus on the process, what am I going to do in the first hundred meters? And then what am I going to do in the next hundred meters? And because I was thinking about that, I was like serenely calm on that start line. And I think that was the reason why instead of coming maybe fourth or fifth, I was able to get a bronze medal. And because it worked there, I've now used that kind of mental tactic or, um, you know, preparation before every race. And I think that first race, that, that London race was like, that's where it kind of clicked. Yeah, yeah Definitely. Now let's move on to World World Juniors. What what was it like competing on that uh, able body stage? I think you know there's not many Paralympic athletes that uh, are good enough to actually compete on that stage. So what 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 did it feel like? And uh, in full disclosure, I was watching a race and I was screaming at at my TV. And um, I don't know if I've ever told you that, but uh, yeah, it was pretty funny. I was uh, losing my mind. <laughs> oh thank you but yeah I, like that you know I was super lucky like that was such a cool experience and you know I'm I'm in one of those classifications where it, it's definitely um probably you know I'm in a position where it's probably easier just because a vision impairment is a different kind of 
impairment. Um, so yeah, I went to I won the national title in Australia. I ran three forty five in a race against um, like Matt Centrowitz, which was pretty cool, and that's how I qualified. So I going into that national title, I um I was probably like the fifth or sixth most likely person to qualify for the Australian team. So I was pretty clutch qualifying there. But being you know I was standing on the start line next to um of my heat next to like Justice Soget who at the time, you know, I think he'd won like the Shanghai Diamond League or something. His PB was 331. Um, and so being in that environment with the best, you know, junior able-bodied runners in the world, like, um, yeah, I, I, I easily could have felt out of my depth, um, you know, perhaps that I didn't belong. But I, I actually found that everyone was super embracing of um, – you know, of, of the fact that I was there and, and I was, I kind of felt like at some points I was representing, you know, vision impaired people, people with disability, Paralympic athletes. Um, and I think, yeah, I think, I, how to explain, you know, like uh, basically I'm running and I'm doing my stride down the back straight before the race and Jakob Ingebrigtsen is in the heat before me. Like that's kind of what was happening. And it, like for me as a fan of the sport, that was really overwhelming, but I had to also remember that, you know, I've been to a Paralympic Games and, and none of those athletes have, have been on the stage like that. Um, so, yeah, it was a lot of lot going through my head, but it was an experience that, you know, I cherish a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can only imagine. And, you know, it was, it was super cool to see you competing on that level, no doubt. Um, Lastly, let's kind of talk about the 2019 World World Championships. I can only imagine that that was a uh, career highlight, which I'm sure you're going to have many more. Um, but yeah, let's talk about going into the into that meet. How was your preparation, and uh, what were the emotions after winning uh, both of those medals? Yeah, well, definitely a career highlight. The preparation leading in was like everything went perfectly uh in terms of running you know i was we went to flagstaff for a month leading in and we do that a lot and you just get so fit off there like the altitude is so good um and like if you go there when you're already fit like you can probably your body can deal with the training a bit better and that was the first time i probably went to a camp at altitude where i was already fit going in which um i think definitely helped uh then we went to um yeah, I still don't know why we exactly chose Spain. Um, I think that we were staying in this village um, or suburb kind of thing that was super nice, but the track um, was being resurfaced, which we didn't know. So we had to travel into Barcelona to train. And, um, you know, we chose, I think we chose Spain because, you know, the, the weather was um, similar to Dubai, but because we, we also wanted to come down to sea level after Flagstaff and um, we didn't want to go to Dubai because that would be too hot. So it was kind of like this halfway point where the time zone wasn't too bad either, but it was also humid. But yeah, we, so we had to travel into Barcelona for training and uh, one of the days that we did that, we actually got robbed and um, our car got smashed into all, you know, you know this is myself, my guide Tim, um, Michael Rogar, who's an arm amputee, and Dion, who is in your race, and how uh, we lost all our racing gear, all our, you know, clothes, um, 
our mobile phones, our wallets, uh, our car was completely smashed up. And we're driving down like the main, you know, plaza kind of road in, in Barcelona to the cop station and um, just like a week out from World Champs and we've just lost everything. And so that part of the preparation wasn't particularly ideal. Um, it also kind of simplifies so much when that happens because you kind of go, well, you know, I don't know, it's like brings you into the moment. It's like, well, we're still alive. And that's what Dion said. The, he was the first person to kind of go, wait, stop. You know, this isn't the end of the world. We're still alive. Um, you know, we're still going to world champs. We're still going to get gear. Like, we've got to calm down a bit. You know, we've got to. And we did that. And, yeah, it just, like, makes you kind of realize what's important. And, um, and yeah, so I think that nearly helped myself perform at the world championships because um yeah we were just so like well what worse can happen um so yeah I won gold in 1500 meters by 0.1 of a second uh, and I won gold in the 5k a little bit more convincingly so the emotions after the first one especially after what we've been through in the last week um that and also just being my first world title was just like, well, just like such a good feeling. Um, you know, I went and hugged my coach. Mum um, and dad were in the crowd. Uh, it just kind of feels like all that hard work, all those weeks training where, you know, it's very much behind the scenes. No one's, no one's witnessing it other than yourself. Um, and it kind of all comes to that moment. You know, that was super special. And then the 5K, being able to do it with Tim, crossing the line with Tim and Philo, my coach, yeah, you know, doing the first half of the race. And that being such a team effort, uh, yeah, that was also like really special. And I think at the time it was like confirmation that I could win in Tokyo. Um, obviously, <laughs> Tokyo is not happening now, but it was like just because it was so close to the scheduled date of Tokyo, it was like, well, if I can win here, like I could definitely win in Tokyo. So there was a lot going through my head in that week for sure. Yeah, no, I, I think I definitely had a, some of the same thoughts. Um, you know, obviously the physical side is so important, and but you mentioned you work with a sports like I do as well. Um, do you have a mindfulness practice that 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 you use? I do. It's made such a big difference for me. But I'm just curious, uh, what does your practice look like, or if you have one? Yeah, I think um, yeah, I wouldn't know how to define like this approach, whether it's mindfulness or not. But like, I'm someone that uh, tries to be positive, but also acknowledge disappointments and um, acknowledge uh, when I'm not happy or acknowledge when something needs to change. So I try and like really be self-reflective of how I'm feeling um, and then also react to that and make a decision based on that. Um, so like I'm trying, I'm always like focused on how I'm feeling internally and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, like before a race, um, before a race, I'm probably not as structured in terms of my mental preparation in that like I like to warm up with um, people and joke about stuff that's just like completely random um, and like not even think about the race until I go into the call room, which is probably like 20 minutes before sometimes. Um, and that's when I'll go into like this really like, uh, mental state of just like going through the motions of being in the moment and just like trying to get into that zone. Um, 
so yeah, it's probably not like quite, yeah, I'm not sure how I'd define that, but that's probably my approach. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it sounds like awareness is super big for you. And I think that's super big for any athlete. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then now let's look forward to hopefully Tokyo 2021. Um, what are your goals? Obviously, I think they're pretty obvious, but um, you know, I would like to hear um, exactly from you what your goals are. Yeah, so yeah, fingers crossed Tokyo goes ahead next year. And um, yeah, the goals, I think after Dubai, I didn't even have a choice really after winning the two gold medals. Um, so yeah, the goal has to be to repeat that performance um, to try and win the double. 1500 meters and 5k uh but that being said like if i win one um you know it's probably not the job that i went to do but you know being a paralympic champion is my dream so one gold medal would also be super cool obviously um looking ahead to paris like if that is the next games um yeah like 1500 and 5k definitely but if Tokyo was happening, my plan for Paris was that I would attempt the 1500 5k in the marathon, which I'm lucky enough in my category that that's an option. Um, so yeah, that's a big goal. I have no idea how feasible it is, but yeah, it's so hard. Like hopefully Tokyo does go ahead and we um, can at least attempt, attempt our goals there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I definitely feel that. And I've always been super interesting with goal setting. How do you do your goal setting? Is it visual? Do you put it up on the wall? Do you put it uh, up on your ceiling? Or do you just keep it in your head? Or um, what does that look like? Yeah, I wrote down like years ago, kind of six goals. I think it's six, you know, I've ticked off four of them now. And, you know, they were like world record, world champion, go to a Paralympic Games, win a world medal. Um, so I've ticked those four. And the other one, you know, is Paralympic gold and I think marathon might be the sixth one. So like they've been written on my whiteboard for years. So I'm seeing those every day. Um, I used to put like in my high school computer, like passwords, I'd put like Tokyo 2020 or something like that. Um, so it was kind of, it's like just always there in my mind, but I also, yeah, like to write them down properly in like a document um, and kind of have like long-term goals, um, like things that I want to have achieved you know, say in 10 years time or stuff like that. But um, yeah, like having flexible goals like right now shows like this is showing how important that is because yeah, like potentially next year we'll have to rethink our goals not having had the chance to achieve our ones for Tokyo. So it's like, you know, elite athletes and pretty much everyone in society right now, whether it's sport or not, you know, we are learning that our goals have to be flexible. So I like writing them down, but I also like knowing that I can change them. And um, so, yeah, that's probably how I approach that. Yeah, definitely. And connected with my goal setting is my performance mindset. And I created this thing called the Grey Wolf Mentality. And I was curious if, you create, if you've worked on your, on your performance mindset or if it's just something you kind of run with. Yeah, like I think it's something I've nearly run with, but like I'd have sought out, you know, from my psych those different strategies and then through trial and error, I guess have formulated just like, yeah, like just like this practice that I know works. Um, yeah. My mental preparation, I've never really written it down. Um, yeah. I'm kind of someone as well. I think that probably works with, yeah. Like I was going to say like over, like not overcomplicating it, but then 
like it's in my head so writing it down wouldn't but yeah it's just like this weird approach like I've found has worked for me in that yeah like I kind of just like know in my head you know this is what I'm going to do but I don't want to think too much about it but I still know what it is that I have to do if that makes sense Um, that's probably how I approach like say a championship Uh, I know exactly that two hours out even though it feels like I'm just joking around like that was a part of my preparation mindset plan um but i feel like once i write it out for me for that like that means that i'm actually just like doing it because of that it's kind of like a trick i think um i don't know how much that makes sense yeah no no that makes 100 sense i think you know there's so many ways to get to the top so you know i think i'm always intrigued of just different different perspective and different options uh yeah. to reach your goal yeah definitely like that's it like, there's so many different ways like i've come across athletes that um yeah one of the guys in my first team you know he was telling me that for the two or three days leading in he knows exactly what he's doing every single hour of every single day for the next three days um like he's written that down and even though like I would know pretty much what I'd be doing um yeah it's his is like his was super structured and uh it's funny like uh but my plan for Tokyo because I had two days off in between my 5k and 1500 I actually was going to get someone to do that for me and have like everything written down so like what I was going to do every minute of the day basically and what I was going to eat exactly and stuff like that so um, yeah sometimes I think I do like prepare completely structurally and then other times um, yeah it's just like a play it by feel kind of approach yeah no absolutely now let's transition off the track I know you and I really uh, want to help push the Paralympic movement forward. And, you know, there's so many people who came before us that have made such an impact uh, for us. Is there something you would like to see done that isn't being done now or just something that needs to be improved uh, over the next 10 years? Yeah, so I think um, one of the real, you know, this is just kind of, uh, this project speaks to what, what I think me and you want for the general vibe overall but the thing that I've been working on with Athletics Australia is to implement a world para cross country into the uh, able-bodied world cross country championships Um, yeah so 2021 it's being hosted in Australia and I actually did successfully manage to you know get a international para cross country race on the program Uh, don't know if that's going to happen now with corona um, but at least we got that in um, as a symbolic step at least for now. And, um, and that was with the aim that in the future it would become a sanctioned world title. So I think Canada's hosting it in 2023. So we might have to um, collaborate on that to ensure that the momentum from Australia, including it, continues, um, even if Australia doesn't get to kind of do it in practice. Um, so, yeah, that would be super powerful because I think that speaks to what we want generally, which is more competition opportunities for para-athletes, um, more recognition that uh, we can do a lot more than just run a Paralympic Games and a World Champs. Like, we, able-bodied distance runners especially have a lot more championships than we do. So it would be cool if we could start getting a few of those as well. Um, recognition is huge. Like... Um, I am in negotiations with like a brand um, with Nike and 
yeah, we're about to have some big announcements in the next month or two, I think. So uh, that's pretty exciting. And, I, you know, I would love to get to a stage where we retire and, you know, minimum top, minimum every medalist in the Paralympic Games for distance running or for any event in any category um, should have the ability, um, if they market themselves well enough, that they could get a sponsorship and ha- even get to a point where they need a manager. Like, I think that's a great measurement of where I hope the Paralympics can go because I think recognition from these brands of us is recognition that a Paralympic career is an elite endeavor and a professional endeavor. So I think that's also something to really strive for. And um, yeah, I know, uh, I think, you know, me and you hopefully can yeah go at least a little way in helping that. Yeah, no, I, I think the big impact will just come collectively and I think you believe in the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think something special about the Paralympic movement is that, like, we finish a race and, um, I don't know, like, I've, I especially notice it in your category, like, we're, at the end of the day, we're actually nearly all friends as well. And I think um, that's going to be super powerful over the next decade. In, is when we work together, you know, Michael McKillop, uh, Dion, yourself, and then in my category, I know some of the African guys have been messaging me on Facebook and, uh, you know, there's people in Rogues' category, the Army Amputee category, and it's like if we all collaborate and we all talk to our national federations and to each other and kind of unite, yeah, under the same goals, like it's just going to be so much more powerful in, in getting things done. So I'm, I'm, so, I'm like... Yeah, hopefully we, this pandemic can sort itself out so we can get back to kind of progressing this movement effectively. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think to just go back to COVID for just one sec, I think, you know, for me, I said, you know, if I don't learn something from this time or if I don't um, grow a new talent, I think it's a waste of time. Um, what is your perspective on this? And um, have you been working on something that you probably wouldn't have been working on uh, some time ago? Yeah, that's like a really good, yeah, like this whole pandemic, especially in lockdown, you got so much time. Uh, There's been a few things, like one, I learned Braille when I was super young, which is like, you know, reading for the vision impaired with the dots. Um, And yeah, I've always known it, but I haven't mastered it to the point where I could use it as my primary mode of kind of reading. It was more secondary. So, yeah, I've been trying to get myself up to speed on that, like, so that, you know, maybe I can use that as my main form of reading and conversing um, literarily, if that's a word. But um, (laughs) the other thing as well, like, I haven't done full-time school since year nine, which would have been in 2014. So uh, I've decided to take on this semester at uni um, a full load, four subjects, which for me... For a lot of people, that's probably like, oh, come on, like that's normal. But for me, it's a, it's a big step. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so now I have some rapid fire. This just should be fun. And a couple of serious questions, but also a couple of funny ones. Um, so my first, my first question is, uh, which one is more, more important to you or which one do you cherish more, your 1500 or 5K world title? Oh, yeah. Uh... Oh, geez, that's hard. 1,500, 
because it was the first one. 5K because it was with my team. Probably the 5K. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, most influential person outside your family? Um, I think influential on my entire career would probably be uh, the coach I had before Philo, Max Bolchin. Uh, he's like the club coach in Diamond Valley, which is my club, yeah. So basically he made me fall in love with the sport. Um, so obviously Philo's been super influential, but without Max, um, perhaps I would never have gotten to the stage where Philo would have been able to coach me. But those two really have been super influential, but Max definitely um, is the reason I'm running today. Wow, that's awesome. Um, your favorite movie? Oh, someone asked me this the other day. One that I really enjoyed, I'm kind of in this uh, learning about the troubles in the UK, you know, the IRA and stuff like that. So there's this movie called In the Name in the Name of Our Father, I think. And that's like a pretty old movie, I think. But yeah, I thought it was really powerful. Uh, basically, Irish guys wrongly convicted by UK. They go to prison and um, they have to try and overturn uh, the political, yeah, it's just a lot of political stuff going in, which I'm majoring in criminology and politics at uni, so it's right up my alley. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, those are my favorite shows to watch, so I, I definitely dig that. Yeah, no, it's good. I recommend it. Um, what's three things you couldn't live without? Wow, this one. This one always gets me. Um, and I, I can't, like, people, other than people, um, Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm really, I'm very audio-centric in that, you know, even to go to sleep, I, I often listen to something. So some kind of audio device would be probably something that could keep me sane if I'm on, like, an island or something as well. But, uh, yeah, I probably can't sleep without that, so that's probably handy. Um pair of shoes uh although you could probably run without shoes but you know just so i can keep running um yeah i always get stuck on this one I'm not sure maybe like i don't know i always like think the trick ones you know like food and water and stuff but uh that's kind of cheating uh a third one would probably be like oh, yeah i don't know maybe like I'd say a laptop, but that's super, that's not really cool. Just because I like to write, um, so I could probably have a pen and paper as well. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Nice, nice. Well, I'm on my two weeks off, and I've been getting really fat. Um, and so I figured <laughs> I should ask what your favorite dessert is, because I've been, I'm here visiting my girlfriend. I've been eating way too much desserts. <laughs> Man, oh, same, actually. Yeah, I, I smash chocolate. Like, even when I'm training like for a world champs or something like i still smash chocolate um i'm really i'm a big fan of like honeycomb chocolate that's like my yeah ice cream as well i'm a massive sweet tooth so um yeah definitely just anything with chocolate in it i'm a big fan of <laughs> awesome awesome so in uni we played a bunch of pranks on on each other um and they were always obviously super funny and i was wondering if there was a favorite 
prank or a funny prank that you're willing to share that you played on your teammate or one of your friends? Ooh, um, my girlfriend Charlotte, actually, when we first started dating, um, she'll hate that I'm telling this story, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> um, so, uh, the first time she came over, um, it was just, yeah, me, her and like one of her friends and she broke one of the wine glasses in our house, which like our wine glasses are super old, super cheap. Like it doesn't matter if you break one. And, um, yeah, she broke one, but she didn't know that. So she obviously freaked out. And, um, mum and dad, when they found out, they like obviously didn't care. But I said, oh, next time she comes over, like leave a voice message. And, um, see if she can like try and trick her into believing that you're actually angry so uh yeah the next time she was over she um yeah the mum and dad rang up the voice message and she fell for that uh I think maybe um she thought I don't know if she's listening right now (laughs) she uh I think she thought that uh mum and dad were angry at her which was pretty funny because she hadn't really met mum and dad at that stage so um yeah she thought she'd uh, stuffed up with by breaking the wine glass, but she hadn't. I played a lot of pranks on her, and I'm usually I'm usually the best prankster in our relationship, I reckon. That's awesome. That's all in college we played. I got so many pranks played on me. I was oh man, my teammates <laughs> were, way, were way too good. Once they put probably five thousand uh, Dixie cups filled with water in my room, oh. and then got oh. back from uh, a meet at two a.m. And then I had a final at 6 a.m. And spent like 90 minutes cleaning it up. And then I had to go and take this final. I was, I don't think I've ever been so more frustrated or mad in my life. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Some of the, yeah, some pranks are just, yeah, they're pretty crazy, I reckon. (laughs) All right. uh, Two more for you. Uh, Favorite quote? Whoa. Favorite quote? Um... Whoa, like it's like I'm not sure if this is a quote or like a phrase, but yeah, like celebrating difference, um, celebrating diversity, like that's a kind of a message that I really like. Um, in training, like this is a super classic kind of a cliche one, but it's like that pain is temporary and victory is eternal or that kind of stuff. Or just just pain is temporary. Like you don't even have to add that second part of it. Um, that helps me get through training. Um, yeah, because like as soon as you finish the session, it kind of feels like pain goes away. So I reckon that's what helps me there. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, quote, like I'm not quite sure, but celebrating difference is like something that I definitely live by. Yeah, yeah, no, that's perfect. And uh, you know I couldn't let you go without doing a little tongue-in-cheek about me and Dion. So <laughs> who's your favorite T38 Tangemere runner? Oh, oh! I've, it's got to be Dion. I've got to say that because uh, me and Dion go way back to 2012. Um, and, yeah, I actually, yeah, like Michael as well, like someone I really look up to and, and I, I definitely look up to you as well in, in how you approach the, the sport. And I think the T38 category is in some pretty good hands at the moment. And uh, I think Dion's secretly loving it, the, you know, the challenge. and. Um, yeah, he's definitely training the house down to have a have a crack next year. So I'm really looking forward to that race. Um, I'm gonna be yeah. uh, 
obviously, I'm obviously going to be going for Dion, but uh, it's it's going to be interesting watching you know three guys that I I know you know pretty well now go head to head, and you know I know what it means to all three of you, so it's going to be awesome, awesome to watch. Of course, man. Yeah, I said I I had to tease you little bit um Dion's Dion's my boy I mean I usually don't like guys who I compete against like mentally I kind of like uh, yeah like try to make up something to my head that they said that um kind of um but no Dion there's no way I could ever not like that guy him and Michael are great and me and Michael talk a lot and um I know that uh, me and Mike like to play some mind games with each other every once in a while so it's all it's all fun again yeah yeah, that's exactly right, and you know, it just adds to the to the challenge and the fun of it all at the end of the day. And yeah, Dion Dion's such a fierce competitor as well. So yeah, like he's the nicest guy, but I think he'd be totally fine, you know, on the start line if you you know for the next four minutes, just with the biggest enemies in the world as well. So um, yeah, he's that kind of guy. Yeah, absolutely. I have two last questions, which I ask every guest. Um, first off, where where can people find you? On the socials? Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. So um, Instagram, uh, Twitter, my handle's the same. So that's at Jared Clifford. Jared spelled J-A-R-Y-D, which like people often don't get right because I think it's like not the most common way to spell Jared. But yeah, uh, I'm on Strava as well. If you want to suss out my training, um, yeah, they're probably the three main places to kind of catch me on the socials, I reckon. Yeah, I'd say, guys, make sure you follow him on Shrala. He's super fun to follow. Um, <laughs> there's always something interesting uh, every couple of weeks or every couple of months. So um, yeah. I love that. <laughs> I try. <laughs> Lastly, um, I think I've asked you this question before on, on Instagram Live, but uh, what do you want your impact to be? And this can be on the track or off or uh, combined? Um, I just think this is a really uh, important question. Yeah, I think like my main, I think I've found over the years that I've kind of, yeah, my main focus has been on, you know, in Australia, our vision impaired community is not as active as other vision impaired communities globally that I've kind of had the experience of. So I would like, like, you know, our Paralympic team doesn't have a lot of vision impaired athletes. Like it's our, it's probably our weakest uh, disability group at the Paralympic Games. So I would love to kind of change that. And if that is by winning medals, uh, talking to people, um, exposing to other vision impaired people that it is possible to get out and be active and how important that is. Like, and if that changes, you know, you know, physical activity rates for the better for vision impaired people in Australia, like that would be super special for me. And then in the global sense, you know, distance running as a Paralympic sport, I think if we can help further that and also get to the stage where, um, you know, take away, you know, government funding, we can actually make a living from, you know, professional brands as well. Like just like able-bodied athletes do like that would be, a place that I'd love to leave the sport in so that, yeah, the people that come up behind, you know, me and you are coming into an environment where that is like completely professional. Uh, like that would be, you know, and they can aspire to that. Like that would be like incredible, I think, to, to leave the sport in, in that way.